Hey, good morning. How are we doing? Grab your Bibles, turn to uh, the first book in the New Testament, the book of Matthew. We're going to be in the eighth chapter this morning, Matthew chapter eight. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. There's ushers coming up and down the row. Um, they will get a Bible into your hand. Again, we're going to be in Matthew eight. Um, a couple things, just uh, I, I need to give a shout out and a thank you to um, those of you who uh, helped serve on Good Friday and who helped serve last week to pull off that weekend. I was, I was thinking back, it was um, six years ago that we had our first service in this building. And uh, that weekend we'd raised the cross on Good Friday. We had our first service here on Easter Sunday, 2013. And we did two services and our church was running maybe seven, 800 before we moved into the building and being Easter, we had about 1300 there that weekend. And it was like, man, this is as good as it'll ever get. And uh, we might not see uh, another Sunday like this for a long time. Well, Sunday, it was interesting to me. We had 2,900 people attend worship services just at this campus alone. If you add in Grand Haven, there were 4,600 people who attended uh, our church over Easter weekend. More amazing is there was 1,003 kids in children's ministry. So if you helped last week in uh, children's ministry, you deserve a shout out. Um, I don't know exactly the specific qualifications for sainthood, but Janelle Lopez has to be close. And uh, it took a lot of people to accomplish what happened. We counted a privilege to be able to proclaim the gospel um, in our community. Thank you for those who invited uh, friends and visitors last week. And uh, just so you know, this is no letdown week after Easter Sunday, okay? I've been so excited for uh, uh, several weeks to be getting into this series. One of the things that we try to do as a church is we try to give you the full counsel of God's word. We go Old Testament, we go New Testament. Last fall, we were in the Old Testament studying the topic of prayer. Through the winter, we've been in 1 Corinthians. We've now are through Easter, and we're going to go back into the Gospels, which is like going home for us. Like, this is where we like to preach. We haven't been in the Gospels for a year. It was last year at this time coming out of Easter that we did a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we spent a lot of time in Matthew 5 through 7. Um, this is different. That series is studying what Jesus taught. This series for the next eight or nine weeks is going to be um, when God draws near, it is encounters or interactions that people have with Jesus. So we're not looking at what Jesus taught or just um, what he was trying to communicate. We're looking at who he was. And we haven't been here looking at Jesus for who he is for a long time. And one of the things that I know, if you look back through the Gospels, anytime somebody has an encounter with Jesus, they leave changed. And that's our prayer as we go back into the Gospels, as we start this study. So I'm hoping that you uh, can make it a priority to be here with us. I hope that this will be something that transforms us as well. Let's, um, before we jump in, I'm jumping into a new book. Let me give you just a little bit of context. Um, it's hard to start in chapter 8 if you don't know what happened earlier in the story. So in Matthew 3, John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. He's baptizing people, saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's preparing the way for Messiah. Jesus comes out in chapter 3. He's baptized by John. And at the start of chapter 4, he goes out into the Judean wilderness to be tried or to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. He comes out of the wilderness. And we're told in Matthew 4, 17, that Jesus begins to preach throughout and, and when he preaches, he preaches very directly. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he goes on in Matthew 4, 23, and it says, and he went throughout all of Galilee, 
teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So he's preaching direct gospel in the synagogues at the start of his ministry. Sometimes when we think about Jesus and his teaching, the first thing that comes to mind is storytelling and parables, right? That doesn't start until Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew 12, there is a confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders and they attribute his ability to do the miraculous that he is doing it under the power and the influence of Satan. And the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah by the religious leaders in chapter 12 lead to a shift in his ministry where he begins to speak in parables. We're before that. He is teaching a direct gospel, preaching in synagogue, saying repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And wherever he goes, his teaching is accompanied by miracles. I don't know if you heard it there, but when I was reading about him preaching throughout all of Galilee, it says in verse um, 23 of Matthew 4, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So what percentage of diseases was he healing? 100%. Commentators say that there was a period of time here in Galilee, it was disease-free. He was wiping out disease through this region, so his fame was growing beyond Galilee. And it's interesting. As Jesus started his ministry, he didn't stay down in Judea where Jerusalem is. He went up to Galilee. So it would be like, rather than starting in Chicago, which is kind of a metropolitan hub, it's where all of the leaders would have been, he went around the lake to the Tri-Cities. To where all the bumpkins lived okay and he started there rather than where you would have thought that he would have started a ministry but he's teaching plainly he's healing people and that kind of gets us caught up to where we are now chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount we studied that like I said a year ago and coming right down from the mountain by the Sea of Galilee where he teaches the Sermon on the Mount it says he came down multitudes followed him And we pick up the story now in Matthew chapter 8. One of the things I want you to be clear on is why did Jesus do as many miracles as he did? We're going to look at three different miracles, three different encounters that Jesus has with three different people. Why the miracles? And we don't have to wonder. Our text actually tells us in verse 16, it says that they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick again all this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet isaiah he took our illnesses and bore our diseases matthew's referring back to isaiah 53 4 where it says that the messiah will take on our infirmities and jesus Matthew is writing, he is making an argument that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. That is the purpose of his book. So he is going to talk a lot about miracles, that Jesus has power over disease, that he has power over nature, he has the ability to calm storms, he has uh, authority and power over the spiritual realms, he can cast demons out of people. He is making an argument that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is wiping out disease he is calming nature it's interesting he's actually what jesus is doing is he's giving you a glimpse of what the world should be our world is broken because of sin and as jesus comes to do the miraculous he's a little different than our vision of superheroes today right 
One of the things that I was reminded between the 9 and the 11 o'clock service, Kristen and I, I was saying, what do we got planned for tomorrow? She goes, I'm pretty sure we're going to a theater, which means I've got to endure an Avengers movie, which means I don't like superhero movies. I think they're stupid. Um, the worst of which are Transformer movies, where you watch robots fight robots for indefinite periods of time. I usually fall asleep. So, so I know I've got this Avengers thing, but, but Jesus isn't like our picture of a superhero where he's just blowing off the top of mountains to, to demonstrate his strength. When Jesus does a miracle, what he's doing is he's setting things back in proper order. He's taking away disease, which is caused by sin, and he's saying that's not going to be here. He's dealing with storms and, and things that afflict people. His miracles are primarily to put an end to human suffering. But it's interesting, Jesus has healed every disease, he's healing everybody that comes to him, but Matthew is going to take the time in chapter 8, and he's going to put the zoom lens, he's going to drill on, down on three different stories, three people, three encounters that he picks out of this dozens, hundreds of people that were healed, and he says, I want you to know the specifics of these three stories. So we're going to focus in on them as well. I want to talk about the characters first. We're going to go through them one at a time. Let's look at the first one. It starts in verse 1 of Matthew 8. I would say this. You're going to find that all three characters are outcasts. They're outcasts. Verse 1. When Jesus had come down from the mountain, he again, he had just given the Sermon on the Mount, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourselves to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. If you lived back in Jesus' day, one of the things that you would be preoccupied with, one of your greatest fears would be that you would get sick. You didn't have medical facilities like we have today. You didn't have medicines. You didn't have the ability to have surgery. People lived in the fear and in the shadow of getting sick because once sickness hits you, it was very hard sometimes for you to get relief to be cured. I was thinking it was 10 years ago or so. I was over in the western part of Africa. We were doing some church planting in the country of Liberia. It's the third um, poorest um, country on the planet. And we had left the main city of Monrovia. We'd gone to the second biggest city in um, Liberia by the name of Buchanan, and we visited the state hospital there. So you're in the second biggest city in this nation of millions of people, hundreds of thousands in the Buchanan. They have one hospital that has 100 beds, 25 for maternity, 25 for children, 25 for men, and 25 for women incredibly limited medical supplies and incredibly um, just poor medical equipment. They had two surgical rooms at this hospital. Both of them had machines that delivered anesthetics before you went into surgery. The problem was in room two, the machine was broken. So if you went to surgery in Buchanan, I don't know if they did paper, rock, scissors. I don't know how it decided which room you got. You definitely wanted room one. And the sad thing was, later international aid would go there. They would fix that machine that had been broken for several years with a part that cost $22. But people are scared to get sick in Liberia because they don't have access to medicine. Every time we would take a trip, and I went back and forth several times, they're like, bring 
aspirin, bring things to help us with fever, bring things to help us with pain, bring things to help us with arthritis, and then you would bring back the medicine in suitcases and they would start to eat it like Skittles and you'd be like, no, 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 you can't do that. And you'd have to worry about dispensing it, but they were desperate because when they got sick, there was no relief. On one of our trips, we were two or three days into the trip and we had a guy start to have seizures. And here's what we knew. The, the place that would be the last place that we would take this guy to was a hospital in Liberia. We put him in his hotel room for a couple days, got air conditioning into the room, and gave him Gatorade, Gatorade and said, good luck. Because to take him to a hospital in Liberia, you risk getting much sicker because of what you would have been exposed to. So this was the mindset of the people in Jesus' day. To be sick was a real problem because you didn't have any access to medical treatment. The thing that you were most scared of, the disease that was most feared in Jesus' day was leprosy. So this man that Jesus comes to is a leper. Did they put that picture? Yeah, that's wonderful. I'll look this way. I'll let you look this way. But, but here's the thing. Leprosy was a disease that would attack the body. It would attack nerve endings. It was incurable. It progressed slowly. It disfigured the person that was afflicted with the disease, it could be very, very painful. Eventually, ears, noses, fingers, toes would get damaged and fall off. Terrifying, right? Now, now we don't deal with leprosy today. There are areas in India where this is still pretty prevalent. As bad as the disease is physically, it's much uh, more difficult and creates a mental anguish that is difficult for us to understand. If you were diagnosed in Jesus' day with leprosy, you were put out from your family, your marriage was done, you couldn't be with your family, you were put out of the community, you were isolated. Leviticus 13 says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain as unclean as long as he has the disease, which it was normally terminal. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling place shall be outside the camp. Again, in Liberia about five years ago, there was a breakout in Western Africa of this Ebola virus. Do you guys remember that? Liberia was the epicenter. The first cases were in an area called Painesville where there's a harvest church that was planted. And at a medical center called Elwa, there was a breakout. An American doctor was infected and it began to spread, many believe, originally from Liberia. Well, has this disease spread, you get a fever during that time, the terror that would strike you that you had this disease and it would they didn't have a cure. It was running out of control. So what the government would do was they would isolate parts of the city where there had been outbreaks. So you can imagine living in Monrovia five years ago, and all of a sudden you wake up one morning and there are soldiers and they're in the streets and they're building barricades and they're throwing down barbed wire fence and they're saying, nobody leaves these neighborhoods. You're on your own. There's been an outbreak in that area and we've got to isolate you from the rest of the city. Can you imagine the terror? 
Can you imagine if you had gone to another part of the city and you were shopping or you were with friends and you come back and you're barricaded from getting back to your family and your home? You can imagine the terror that broke out in Monrovia. Well, if you were a leper in Jesus' day, you were done. You were outside the community. You couldn't go back to your family. And by the way, a big part of this was you couldn't go to the temple because they were under the old sacrificial system where you offered sacrifices and atonement for sin. This is a little more complicated than, oh, I can't get to church on Sunday, I'll stay home and watch live stream. You you were isolated. This man was an outcast. Probably one of the greatest outcasts that you can imagine in this day and age, except for maybe the next guy. Look at verse 5. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority and soldiers come uh, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes and another come and he comes and do my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jump down to verse 13. He says, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So the leper was an outcast. The next story that Matthew records for us is the story of a Roman centurion. A Roman centurion by definition, is a Gentile. He's probably Samaritan, which makes him even more hated. He is a commander of a hundred men in the Roman army, and you didn't advance in the ranks of the Roman army without being able to demonstrate some level of fierceness or brutality. The Roman army was the occupying army that was afflicting and oppressing the nation of Israel. So for a Roman centurion to come to Jesus, you need to understand this crowd, this mass of people surrounding Jesus, this guy was hated the minute he showed up on the scene. In addition, he wasn't just appealing for himself to be healed, he was appealing on behalf of his slave. Now to be a slave in that society would have been, well, let's just say that you weren't greatly valued. Aristotle said this of slavery, He said, there can be no friendship and no justice towards inanimate things. Indeed, not even toward a horse or an ox or a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. In Jesus' day, Gaius Caesar said, it is universally accepted that the master possesses the power of life and death over his slave. So, you need to understand This man had compassion for his slave. That was unusual. But in a society, the Roman leader, the centurion was an outcast. And to be his slave also meant that you had no value, that you were an outcast. So the first two stories, a centurion, a leper, and in verse 15, or 14, we see the third outcast. It says, and as Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever a leper, a centurion, and a mother-in-law. Three outcasts. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm teaching you the word of God. It's right there. It, 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 was, just, it was just too easy, right? That, that's some low-hanging fruit right, right there. Um, 
Now, for the record, I've got to be careful because I have a mother-in-law, but I actually have the greatest mother-in-law in the world who sometimes watches on live stream. So I just want to say that I'm not going to push this too far. Couple things. It's interesting. This is Peter's mother-in-law. What does that tell you about Peter? He was married. It's interesting. It doesn't give us a lot of details. There's just two quick verses here. It says that she was lying with the fever, which means that she wasn't able to function as she normally would have. I don't know how high her fever was. I'm going to assume that it was high because she's a woman. My wife with a fever of 101, she's fully functional. To get her unfunctional, it's got to go over 103. I tick 99.5. I'm a sniveling mess. So the fact that she was a woman, we can deduce that it was a high fever, but we don't have a lot more details beyond that. The issue isn't that she's a mother-in-law, the issue is that she's a woman. Because again, like a slave that had little value, women were viewed lower than men, they were viewed higher than cattle, but they weren't where God intended them to be in this culture. So Jesus goes, and the stories that Matthew highlights the characters are outcasts. Let's look at the way that they approached Jesus. They approached with desperate faith. It says this, again back to verses 1 and 2. It says, Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now let me just stop there. Put yourself back in this day. I've already told you that these guys were isolated from the rest of the community Jesus is surrounded by a multitude of people, a, a huge crowd, we were just told. How does the leper get to Jesus? What is that like? As he approaches this crowd, what is the response of the crowd? Do little kids scream? Do they run and hide because he's disfigured because of his appearance? Do mothers pull their kids back? Does a crowd spread so that he can come through? As he's yelling, unclean, unclean, and he's approaching Jesus, are the men in the crowd hurling insults, hurling profanities? How humbling must it have been for him to make his way through the crowd as a leper while the rest of the crowd hates him and is fearful that his disease will spread? You've got to understand, this was not an easy approach. This man is desperate to get to Jesus because he understands that he needs to be healed. The big idea today is not complicated. If you're keeping notes, it's this. The big idea is if you don't know you're sick, you cannot be healed. I don't think this guy had any lack of clarity that he needed to be healed. He had leprosy. He was disfigured. If he looked down and couldn't count ten fingers, there was a problem. So he makes his way in a def desperate appeal to get to Jesus. And I love what he says. He says, well, let me read it. It says this, he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He's not questioning whether Jesus can heal him. It's a definitive statement that Jesus can heal. The only question is, will he heal the leper? But the leper has complete faith that he can be healed by Jesus. Again, I don't mean to state the obvious, but if you don't know you're sick, you don't go to Jesus because you don't know that you have to be healed. 20-some years ago, my, my father passed away. He died of pancreatic cancer. He was diagnosed in January. He 
died in March. Nine weeks from diagnosis to death. Stage four pancreatic cancer was his diagnosis. He had no symptoms. He didn't know he was sick. If he knew he was sick earlier, he would have gotten to a doctor and there might have been something that they could do. But because he didn't know that he was sick, the disease progressed to the point that it was terminal by the time that he found out. This man has an incurable disease and he recognizes that he's sick, so he goes to get himself healed. Listen to how the centurion approaches. Verse 5, it says, When he entered Capernaum, Jesus, the centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is paralyzed, lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now, it's interesting. Luke 7 has a parallel account of this story with the centurion. We learn there that he's a, a young boy. We don't know his age, but he's a young boy, pretty sick. He's paralyzed. It doesn't sound like he was a paralytic, but his illness has progressed to the point that he can't move and he's suffering terribly. The account in Matthew says that the centurion approached Jesus and conversed with him. The detail from Luke says that he never speaks directly to Jesus. He sent other people on his behalf. Jesus never spoke directly to the centurion and he never meets the boy. But you need to understand, as this centurion comes to Jesus or he sends a party on his behalf to appeal to Jesus on behalf of his slave, it is unusual, it is uncharacteristic for a Roman soldier, a centurion, to beg for help from a homeless Jewish man. That took some humility. And though the Roman centurion was a... He had standing in his community. He was a man of authority. People did what he said to do, and though he had compassion on his slave, he had no ability with all of his rank and power to do anything to make his slave better. He had to get to somebody who had the power to heal, and he was desperate to get to Jesus, and he appealed to Jesus to have the same compassion on his slave that he had so that he could be saved. I find it interesting that both the leper and the centurion in approaching Jesus, the account begins with the same word. They call him Lord. That's, that's more significant than Mr. or Sir. In calling him Lord, they said, you have authority over us. Matthew is very specific in his language throughout his book. Only followers and believers in who Jesus is call him Lord. Those who don't believe who Jesus is refer to him as rabbi or teacher. So in using this language, Matthew is explaining that these men came, humbled themselves because they believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He was the Son of God. So they come humbly. They are desperate. They understand that only Jesus can heal. I also find it significant that they both use this word Lord, and you'd miss this if you didn't look back into the end of chapter 7, but at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has just gone through, at the end of his sermon, these verses, Matthew 21, verses 20, verse, Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So as they approach him calling Lord, Jesus has just said, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, is really saved. More on that later. We're going to get to this in a little bit. Both the leper and the centurion called him Lord. They were outcasts. Their approach was desperate faith. I want you to see Jesus' response. It was personal. Let's stay with the centurion's 
story for a minute. So the centurion approaches him and says, you've got to come heal my servant. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. No, Jesus doesn't say, let's go to your house and kind of figure out what's wrong. Uh, I don't know how sick he is. Maybe I can heal him. Maybe I can't. I mean, Jesus is definitive. He's confident. He says, I'll go to your house and I'll heal him. This response catches the centurion off guard. You can tell by how the centurion responded in verse 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. The offer to go to the centurion's house was unusual because for a um, religious leader in Israel, for a Jewish person in general, to enter the house of a Gentile was either forbidden or at least frowned upon. So when Jesus says, I'm going to go to your house, the centurion freezes for a moment. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, like that's too close. And he responds and he says, you don't have to go. All you have to do is say the word and you will be healed. Jesus is going to respond to this. He goes, this is the greatest faith I've seen in all of Israel. Here's the question. How did the Roman centurion know that all that Jesus had to do was speak the word? Up until now, all of the stories of Jesus' healing was people bringing sick people to him. We can read in other gospels where they give the account of people dropping paralytics through the roof. They cut holes in it to get to Jesus. People are bringing the sick to Jesus, bringing the sick to Jesus. This guy says, you don't even have to go. All you got to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. I believe that your word is powerful enough and will travel quickly enough that wherever my servant is, you just say the word. How did he know that that was true? Well, the centurion had to reason as a man of authority. He says, the people under my authority do what I tell them to do. And he's observing Jesus, and he sees that he has the power to heal, and he says, Jesus has the authority over disease. He must be more than a man. He must be the God that he claims to be. And if disease is under his authority, all he's got to do is speak the word, and it's gone. We don't know for sure that Jesus ever met the sick servant. We don't know, comparing the accounts, that there was direct communication between Jesus and the centurion. All of it might have been done through intermediaries. And that all Jesus had to do was say the word, and he was healed. Jesus is willing to go into a Gentile's house. That's the offer he makes because he's not afraid to go where sick people are in an effort to heal them. Let's look at the interaction with the leper, verse 3. The leper has come and said, you can heal me. The only question is, will you? And Jesus, in verse 3, says, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. There's, there's one important word in that verse, and that word is touched. I wonder how long the man had been sick. We don't know. Had it been... A month? Had it been months? Had it been a year? Had it been years? How long since this man had had anybody touch him? Matthew's very clear. He's very direct in his account. Jesus stretched out his arm and he, he touched him. 
How do you think the crowd responded when Jesus touched him? Think there was an audible gasp? Think they were like, are you crazy? Do, do you not understand? The Old Testament law said, if you touched a leper who was unclean, now you're unclean. And you've got to go through a long, several-day cleansing process to prove that now you don't have leprosy to be able to go back to the temple or back into your own community. See, see when Jesus touched the leper, he made himself an outcast in that moment. <laughs> and he risked the fact that the disease was infectious. There's no reason to touch the guy. We just saw that all he had to do was speak the word and the centurion's servant was healed. And yet Jesus reaches out his hand as this leper approaches, as the crowd watches and probably gasps in horror and he touches the dude. Because it's personal. Jesus is connecting with these men. They were outcasts. They came to him with desperate faith. The response is personal because these miracles are meant. The point of all of this is the gospel. See, when you touch a leper, you become inflicted with their disease. But when Jesus touched the leper, it wasn't him that became unclean. It was the leper that became cleansed. It says that immediately his leprosy was gone. What did that look like? New fingers and toes? New ears and a nose? Like, what would that have been like to observe in the crowd to see leprosy recede and him immediately restored? Jesus identifies with his disease, and by identifying with his disease, he is cleansed. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he being God the Father, he made him being Jesus. For our sake, God made Jesus Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Those that approached Jesus, they knew that they were sick. They knew that they were desperate. They knew that they needed to be healed. So they did whatever it took, whatever humility was necessary to get to Jesus because they knew that he was his only hope. Sometimes I wonder, do we know how sick we really are? Has there been a moment where you've approached Jesus because you're desperate and you've been willing to call him Lord because you understand that without him, you're not going to be cleansed? Jesus did physical miracles prove that he could heal our physical diseases to demonstrate that if he could do that, he also had the power to heal our spiritual needs. But I think the problem is we forget sometimes how sick and how in desperate need of healing we really are. Satan is the great deceiver. He's called that in Revelation 12, 9 and other parts of Scripture, which means that he is a liar. He's really good at it. And what Satan tends to do is he tells those who are not saved 
that they're okay, that they don't need a healer, that they don't need a savior. And he's sometimes really good at telling those who have been healed that they're not really saved, that they're unclean. He lies to both parties. Jesus takes three outcasts, a leper, a centurion, and a woman, and he says, I came to save outcasts. Psalm 147 verse 2 says, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the numbers of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. What the psalmist is trying to declare is the very God who created and names the stars cares for the outcast. And he's willing to heal them and it's personal and he'll come to them and he'll heal. But the question is, do you realize that you need to be healed? It's interesting, as these three stories are taking place, there's another group that we haven't talked about. That's the crowd. And Jesus turns to the crowd and he addresses them directly. He says in verse 10, he says, truly I tell you, no one in this, no one with no one in Israel have I found such faith. That's verse 10. So he's healed the Roman soldier and he turns to the crowd, mostly Jewish, and he says, I haven't found this great of faith in all of Israel. You think that's a burn? I think it's a pretty good burn. You think that was good news to them? You think that one stung a little bit? If you think that's bad, listen to what he says next. He says in verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into utter darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's what he's saying. There will be people that come from the surrounding nations. They're not even part of God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. And they will recognize me as Messiah while my own people miss it. Always been shocked that the religious leaders in Jewish day rejected him as Messiah. The fingerprints of who Jesus were were throughout the, New Test or the Old Testament. They'd studied the prophetic message and yet they didn't see Jesus as Messiah when he came. How could they miss it? Here's why. They didn't know they were sick. They weren't looking for someone to heal their disease. Matthew 9 verse 10 says, And Jesus reclined at a table in the house, Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. The Pharisees said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. That's the given reason why the nation of Israel missed the chance to be healed by their Savior. Now, as Jesus addresses the crowd, he says, listen, my fear is that some of you think that you're part of the family of God, but you're not. And throughout the New Testament, I could take you to passage after passage where it says, as a follower of Jesus Christ, examine yourself. Make sure that you're not being deceived or self-deceived. And then in verse 12, he says, the kingdom, while the sons of the kingdom, those in the crowd who thought they were righteous, will be thrown into utter darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a reference that Jesus is making to a place called hell. Now, the moment I say the word hell, this room gets really quiet. It's not a popular subject. 
the word hell is not politically correct. For some, it is morally objectionable. It is ethically troubling. You have opinions, you have objections, it's too long, it's too harsh, there should be a second chance, I don't think, well I feel. And though we struggle with the concept of hell, please hear me, Jesus talks about it all the time. And hell is a reminder of how desperately sick we really are. Listen, just from the book of Matthew, Matthew 13, verse 41, he says, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Nine verses later in 1349, he says, The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, 13, King said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into utter darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 24, 50, verse 51. He says that Jesus will come on a day they didn't expect and an hour that the servant didn't know. And that servant will be cut in pieces and put with the hypocrites. In that day there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 30. And cast the worthless servant into utter darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You seen a common theme? My job is not to make you comfortable with the things that Jesus says. My job is to tell you what he says. But let me promise you something, that all of your opinions and all of your objections as it relates to hell will one day bow in submission like everything else to the person and the words of Jesus Christ. It's only his opinion that matters. And Jesus is warning this crowd that believes that they're saved, be careful that you didn't miss the fact that you're desperately sick and you need to be healed. reminds us we need a savior so if it's easy to be deceived if there were some in the crowd that Jesus was concerned with that were deceived how do we know whether we've actually been healed or whether we actually are not healed it was pretty easy with the slave of the centurion he was no longer paralyzed he got up with the Peter's mother-in-law her fever left her with the leper he had fingers. It was pretty obvious. It was observable change. Spiritual healing, how do we know if it really took place or not? Well, I could give you a lot of examples. I don't mean to make this exhaustive. I just want to take you back into the text and give you three that I see in this passage. Here's the first one. How do we know that we're healed? We respond in obedience. To the leper, he said, Go, show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So the leper is healed from his disease and in response to the healing, Jesus says, go do what the Old Testament law commands you to do. Now it's interesting, he didn't say as a condition of you being healed, you have to do this. He didn't say do this first and then I'll heal you because our obedience never heals. But in response to being healed by a Savior, Jesus says, don't just have faith that I can do the miraculous. 
Respond in obedience to what I tell you to do. Again, a reference back to the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of the Father who sent me. Obedience. Are you willing to do the things that God's asked you to do? Or are you holding on to areas of your life, habits and practices and attitudes and behaviors that you know are in defiance of what God's called you to do? That would raise a question. Here's the second thing I see in the text. Obedience, the second would be witness. Now, you've got to follow my backwards logic. It's a little twisted, okay? But hang with me. In response to the leper being healed, Jesus says to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. That would sound like Jesus is telling him not to witness, right? And do you know why it sounds that way? Because that's exactly what Jesus just told him. <laughs> this man, in this moment, was told to be quiet because Jesus is holding off the inevitable, What's going to happen is Jesus is going to continue for three years and proclaim the gospel and interact and inter discuss with the religious leaders and banter and argue and heal and show compassion. And then he's going to go to the cross for this testimony and he's holding off the inevitable by saying, don't tell anyone. But if you think about it for a minute, the very fact that he told him not to tell anyone is proof that the natural response to being healed is you want to tell everyone. That's the whole reason there was a crowd around him, right? Why were these people following him? Because the people that got healed kept telling everybody. If you were healed of cancer and you had gone through chemo and radiation and then you had a PET scan and the PET scan said that you are cured, that you are cancer-free, how quick would you be to tell your loved ones? See, the natural response to being healed is that you want to tell everyone. And in this specific interest, Jesus tells this man, keep it to yourself. Because he knew the natural response to someone who's been healed is they want to tell everyone they know. Is that you? And then a third one from the text. Now I'm down into the story of Peter's mother-in-law. You'll see it in verse 15. It says this. He saw his mother-in-law lying with a fever and he touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. See, the response to healing is we say, we want to be servants of Jesus Christ. We're willing to call him Lord. We're willing to do what he asks us to do. We want to tell everyone what he's done. And we want to have a different mission in life. We're willing to put him on the throne of our lives. Three tells whether or not you've been healed. Listen, you can't be healed if you don't know you're sick. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, we thank you that you are not a God who is far off, who is distant, who is removed, or who is uninterested. We thank you for a God and that you are a God who would send his son. And he would come and he would show us who you are. And Father, as we look at your interactions with the different people that we will study over the course of the next eight or nine weeks, Father, I thank you for these three stories that we could start here and be reminded of our desperate need to be touched by the Savior. Father, we confess that too easily we forget how desperately we need you. The stakes are eternal. The need is real. Our brokenness 
is all-encompassing. And so we cry to you, Lord, please heal. And Father, we thank you that you respond to that call. You have promised that those who call on the name and recognize you in faith, that you are who you said that you are, that you will heal, you will restore, you will transform, you will change. None of this is possible if you weren't willing to send your son to suffer on our behalf. So it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we even have the boldness to approach your throne. But because of who he is, because of what he's done, because of what he's done for us, we approach you with confidence and with praise for who you are. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.